We're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. This is Beyond the Pass. Conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality and what makes us get out of bed each day. Fainwar Frederick is co-founder and co-owner of Chuku's, the world's first Nigerian tapas restaurant. She is a writer and dancer and all-around legend, and we're so excited to have her on Beyond the Pass. I'm Tobiana. I am the founder of Kelly's Cause Foundation, and I am absolutely thrilled to be talking to a Fainwar today. I'm going to hand it straight over to her to introduce herself and tell us a little bit more about what's going on for her at the moment. I don't even know if I can beat what you said. I got called a dancer and a legend. <laughs> um, thank you for having me. Uh, so yeah, I'm a famous Frederick, or people call me Iffy. Um, as you mentioned, I am co-founder of Chukus, the world's first Nigerian tapas restaurant, which me and my brother set up to celebrate the best of Nigerian cuisine and culture. We were operating as a pop-up for the best part of four years. And then in 2020, we finally opened our permanent site (laughs) just four weeks before the lockdown. So we've been restauranting um, throughout the uh, pandemic alongside running the restaurant. I'm also a writer. Um, I write for stage and screen. Uh, My debut play was on in 2018. I accidentally actually fell into writing. Um, And my next play is out now essentially his tour is it's just finished its tour and it hits soho theater um in on the 8th of november and that's about a young black man going through the process of therapy i cannot wait to see it i'm so so excited it just looks amazing and i've loved uh following along on instagram and seeing all of the feedback and um yeah we're going to come to talking about sessions and talking about you Um, being a writer in a little bit but I wanted to start by asking about kind of how you got in to the restaurant business Um, I know you and your brother had a kind of I guess unusual way of kind of getting into starting Chukus and I just want to hear your story about that yeah it was um it definitely wasn't something that anyone could ever say we were destined to do um like I was telling my team even the other day that Um, most of them have more experience than I did when we actually started the restaurant. Um, And it actually just came more from a love of our culture uh, and our heritage and that feeling and frustration you get when something you want doesn't quite exist. So we grew up on the border of East London and and Essex and where we live, there isn't a particularly, there still isn't really a particularly um, large Nigerian community Mm. and Nigerian restaurants weren't really a thing in the areas where we were going out to. They very, I want to be clear that Nigerian restaurants have long existed in London, but where we were um, sort of like hanging out, they, they weren't present. And as we were growing up, we'd be like, oh, wouldn't it be so nice if there was a place that was like here or the place that was like this and a place that we could bring all our friends to um, in the areas that we were going to, essentially. And we we kind of knew that we thought Nigerian food would be appreciated by all sorts of people because when we would have it in our lunchboxes, everyone would want to try it and would enjoy it. Um, and so that kind of was like the general conversation that used to have in our house. I oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a Nigerian restaurant like X. Wouldn't there be great if there was a Nigerian restaurant like Y? Um, and then we got into, I would have, I think I would have just turned 20 or been in my early twenties. And my brother and I were now just actually becoming more frustrated. It, it turned from being like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if to, this is kind of annoying actually that there isn't. And actually this is, this is, no, this is a bit of a jar now. And so we said, you know, why don't we give it a go? And we spoke actually for quite some time, almost like years about different ideas, but we never really landed on anything. Um, And then we came up with the concept that we do now. And even at the time when we were starting, which is, I guess, why we started as a pop-up, I don't, whilst we long had like a dream of, oh, it would be great to have a Nigerian restaurant like X, I don't think when we started, I necessarily knew we'd be here. And I say that because at the time my brother was working in the city, he was very happy in his job. He'd just got into the team that he wanted to. And I was actively looking for my first graduate role. So it wasn't like I was 
I, I wasn't saying to myself, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur now and I'm going to start a restaurant now and that's going to be my life. It was very much a case of we'd had this idea and we thought, no, let's give it a go. We'd, we'd seen pop-ups happen. We thought, why not? Let's just, let's just see what happens. Um, and what happened was it was an absolute operational disaster. I watched friends give food to the wrong table. We had queues at the door. We lost tickets. If I ever had service like that at Chikus, I'd be... I'd, I'd like be deeply concerned about what I might read on Twitter the next day. But at the same time, people loved it. And it was particularly really popular and people could see where we were trying to go. And I think from that, we realized there's something here um, and actually let's put our all into it and give it a go. Um, and at the same time, the operational disaster side of things to us, we had a lot to learn. <laughs> Yeah. And so that was when you both kind of went to work in different London restaurants, am I right? To get that kind of experience where you could get kind of an understanding of how you were going to run and turn this pop-up that everybody loved into a kind of successful restaurant business. Yeah. So I, I have a really shoddy memory, so I can't exactly remember years, but basically between like 2016 and late 2017, that's when America and I essentially were going through our apprenticeship. And um, we did like pop-up after pop-up and we learned, we learned a lot from our own pop-ups from what was going wrong. Um, and we, we made a lot of mistakes. I can put my hands up and say that they, they weren't, a lot of them weren't very good in terms of operationally. They were great fun if you were there. Um, we also went and got jobs in the industry. Um, but also one other thing that we did that I think is such, like I remember a lot, and it really is a testament to the industry. We did a lot of cold calling, um, sent emails to different, or like messages to different um, restaurateurs, been like, oh, hey, um, would you mind giving us five minutes to answer this? We're interested in this. And the industry was extremely responsive. Like America and I have notebooks um, full of notes from those kind of one-to-one -one meetings. And some people might have met with us more than once, which was great. But some people, they gave us one lunchtime, an hour. And in that hour, when you don't know anything, what someone can give you in an hour is extremely a lot. Um, and so during that time, we, yeah, we, we, we gained a lot of knowledge. We amassed a lot of knowledge about the ins and outs of running a restaurant, um, which we put, some of that we put into practice as a pop-up, but actually a lot of that factored into our heads about the decisions we made about the restaurant we were actually going to open in the end. Um, and then also the decisions we made when actually opening the restaurant. Yeah, I think that's, it's so true what you say about how you really learn how not to do things, don't you? Like, I think that's one of the best ways to learn is like, let's try this. Oh, that, that really doesn't work. Let's never do that again. Let's try another way. And also it's, it is for an industry where seemingly restaurants are all kind of competing against each other for, you know, a number of, of, of people out there who want to go out to eat. It actually is an industry that in a lot of ways can really support each other and that's it's so nice to hear that you kind of learned so much from people already in the industry and people are so willing to kind of give give up that information and and pass on that knowledge yeah I think so because I think actually what you realize is ultimately what distinguishes restaurants really is execution um and so like I remember actually someone once saying to me, oh, don't you worry, there'd be another Nigerian tapas restaurant. And I was like, well, no, not really. Because it's not, it's not just, it's not the fact that we do Nigerian tapas. That's the only thing that makes chikus, chikus. Um, and I think actually the people that we spoke to were very comfortable in where they were, their careers and um, what their restaurant was offering. I don't think they saw we, us coming up and thought, oh no, if I give them this advice, that's gonna mean they're gonna take my custom because it doesn't work. It doesn't really work like that. Also, there are multiple days in a week and lots of people go out to eat multiple times. Um, but yeah, I think that that apprenticeship is kind of what I call that period was really, really instructive. But also I think even now, what it means is having started from nothing, I actually have quite a good understanding of where someone can get to. So with recruitment, I, I can appreciate actually that you might come in without the skills, um, without the technical skills, but actually if you are like a plucky individual, you're ready to apply yourself, ready to learn, got an openness, 
actually I can have a good sense of where you might be in a couple of months because I've because I didn't know <laughs> five years ago uh, or no coming on to six years ago now I'd never held a tray um even sometimes I'm still surprised that I can hold a tray as well and, I, and I'm <laughs> honest I'm still not the best person at it like when sometimes the team bring out the Prosecco glasses I'm like oh yeah you that's great me I still get nervous like I'm like <laughs> I don't want to carry that um but yeah I think that was a really it was a really a really important time and also I think it's there's a lot of mm, what would I say less glamorous parts of the job cleaning toilets dealing with difficult guests who maybe don't appreciate how hard you're working taking out a lot of bins a lot of lot of bins and I think maybe if we hadn't gone through that period of time, we might fall, we, it's possible to have fallen in love with like the glamorous side of running a restaurant, talking to guests and being like, ooh, this is our shop. But I think having done the time that we did, doing some of the boring jobs, like polishing cutlery, polishing glasses. Um, I actually am now really fond of laying tables and cleaning down tables, but having done all those jobs um, and I also take a lot of pride in cleaning the restaurant toilet actually, but having done all those jobs in other businesses, I think it, it meant that we couldn't, we knew what we were going to be in for. We did, we couldn't have lulled ourselves into a full sense of um, comfort. Like, oh, we'll be like this all the time. and It'll be really fun and easy. You know, there are late closes, you'll be tired. Um, and it's hard. It's fundamentally hard work. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It is fundamentally hard work. Whatever you do in hospitality, whatever role you're in, it is fundamentally hard work and it's so true about the glamorous thing isn't it like people like oh you own a restaurant like oh that's so cool and you're like yeah the majority that like the reality is that I do spend most of the time cleaning the toilets or polishing glasses or dealing with difficult and rude customers or you know chasing people who haven't paid their invoices or whatever it might be is that the reality is that it's actually not so glamorous is it but still fun still a lot of fun it's, it's, a lot of the time yeah but I think and that's it really is that and actually I think that's where teamwork really comes into play because I think um the difference between maybe one shift to another shift or one job to another job is not necessarily the work itself right it's, it's pretty much the same if, if you're on the front of house you're taking orders you're welcoming guests blah 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 blah, blah. it's it's the team it's it's the team it's how it's how you all chip in um, is how you're managed um, and the environment. And also, I think the team also in terms of the guests that come through the door, um, like what kind of guests that restaurant or establishment um, attracts. And and some guests are like, yeah, some places just get really, really fabulous guests. I want to kind of ask you, as you say about Chukus being the world's first uh, Nigerian tapas restaurant, about whether you've sensed a kind of shift in the place that African food and African cuisine has kind of taken up in uh, the restaurant industry, I guess mainly within London more than anything, because that's where we're both based and where we have that kind of experience. So do you think in the kind of almost six years that you've been kind of doing this, that you've sensed a shift in that? Um, Yeah, both forward, but then also backwards. Um, so one of the things I think was really beautiful about the pop-up scene was how it was enabling and actually pop-up, not just in terms of food, like even like pop-up retail shops, pop-up events. Um, it enabled basically people's ideas to give stuff a go. And I actually think as a consumer, you got to experience like a really wide range of things. And there would be, so like one event that we used to go to and then as, as um, attendees and then we were there with Chukus was pop-up Africa that used to be at Spitfields Market on a couple of the bank holidays and there you'd have um, food stalls representing different African countries people selling clothes um, and it was truly truly fantastic and at the time that when when Nemeka and I started I recall we, we were almost like part of a community of pop-ups representing um, a few different African countries um and that was brilliant and there was therefore some kind of attention there and now on the other side six years later there is still a focus and um or like there is still that attention with um with some of the restaurants that have opened I'm thinking of Nigerian restaurants that have have um opened and got permanent places since then which have been capturing um like uh wider attention uh the, the one that's coming to mind now is a um 
And that's been really good to see. However, I'm very aware that there are a number of operators who were with us when we were a pop-up that haven't been able to make that journey. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but also what's happened now, I think in part because of the pandemic, and maybe it will come back, but I feel like there was a bit of a death of the pop-up scene. And so if the pop-up scene was the place where we were really seeing at that time um, uh, African food operators, new African food operators get access to the industry, but that scene has now collapsed, it does make me think, okay, so where will we actually be um, in six years' time? Because Chukus wouldn't exist if we didn't start as a pop-up. We we needed those years of a pop-up to build our community, to build our credentials, to be able to even just raise funding. We didn't come from backgrounds where it was maybe possible to have done that other way otherwise. And so on the one hand, we've had some progression because we've now got some places with permanent sites. But I worry about the pipeline of 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 who of of who will come up next because actually where where are these people getting the opportunity to give the, to give their idea a go and at the same time i worry about um the industry's i guess almost complacency or the like the way people talk like we've got maybe people can name three to four um countries um maybe people can name three to four like your average londoner might be able to name three to four restaurants that serve cuisine um, from Africa, but that's a continent that has 54 countries. And even within those countries, there are multiple, multiple cultures. So you're like, well, now we haven't really, we, we're, we're only really scratching the surface with what could be possible. Um, and, and so I do get a bit concerned sometimes when people talk about the progress that we've made as if we've really come um, leaps and bounds and like like I for myself for example I've been to um I really loved Senegal when I went and if I pop on to time out potentially and try and look up a Senegalese restaurant I'm I, I don't think I'm gonna find it um and there are I think there's so much scope for us to have multiple restaurants f- from each country representing those cultures and in multiple um in like various types of restaurants from your fine dining from your casual to your casual dining you know there's 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 so much space in the industry and I think there's so much opportunity for the various cultures to be represented in different ways so for me if like if this is where we if this is it, if this is where we get to, or we only make marginal movements from here, it's not enough. We this is not enough. I can't I can't be um satisfied with that. I am happy that we as Chukus have got our own place, but I wanna see others. I'd you know, I, I, I would have loved for um more of those who we were in that community of pop-ups um to to come forward. And there's actually one at the moment who uh there's a there's a Senegalese pop-up called uh Little Baobab. And I saw them tweet the other day. They tweeted something. And I was like, oh, are you guys looking for a site? And they said, yeah, they are. And I was literally delighted. Um, their, their food's fantastic. Like, I, I want to be able to go to that every day. I don't want to have to wait for the supper club that's happening and then wait for the next three months because I maybe missed that first one. So, yeah, selfishly, for me, the progress isn't enough. It's, we're, not even, we're not even close. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that, unfortunately, the restaurant business is gatekept by middle-aged rich white men and if you are anything outside of that it's very difficult to break into and you're right like you know we can't just be playing like you know grouping all of Africa's countries together like it's not there's so much more for us to learn and understand and be able to experience like you know I love a good bowl of pasta but I don't need another pasta restaurant popping up in London there's about 70 different ones I could probably name off the top of my head and also things like when um, the Michelin Guide comes out, it's like I, I did a blog post about this when it when it happened earlier in the year that it was like something like 7% of the restaurants featured um, covered anything outside of Europe. <laughs> and it's just, it's just ridiculous. Like it, it's absolutely – and I feel like the, the thing is, is like, 
you know, there's a lot of a lot of issues around that. But I think that one of the biggest shames is that we're actually just missing out on really fucking good food. Yeah, that's honestly that's why I would say at the, at the basic level, I can't afford to travel to every country I'd like to. I would therefore like to eat it in London, to, to eat to eat to eat at least experience the culture in some way through London and and it is that. But I also think what you've got is um. Mm, there's also a question about respect of the cultures. So these restaurants can also open, um, but for example, I mean, this is something that uh, Mandy from Sambo Shiokas has spoken about a bit, where maybe she doesn't get as much now, but at times people complain to her a lot about her price as if because of what she's because she's offering Malaysian food, it should be like five pound a bowl. Um, and I mean, I've I've had it at times where I've heard people complain about our price. They're like, oh, it was just a plate of this, and it's like it's not just a plate of this. This ingredient has come from Nigeria. This this ingredient is actually very difficult to source. We're not comparing like with like. I don't think people maybe necessarily complain about the same thing when it comes to pizza. Um, pizza, pizza exists in restaurants at all different price points and so does a pasta dish and um, yeah I, I and I always find it interesting that the consumer has already de- some consumers have already decided what they think that di- the price of that dish should be when it's like but have you do you actually know where these ingredients come from when when I say this dish is a Nigerian dish I also mean because these ingredients have come from Nigeria and and like the, I mean there was a time for example we number of our dishes had suya there was a time it was really difficult for us to source suya pepper um it wasn't just something it's not sort of something we can just put in a regular order with our regular supplier and for whatever reason there wasn't lots of it coming into nigeria so the way we were able to get it that that was costing us more than 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 you know it might normally have and we absorbed some of that cost but then when you sometimes get someone complaining and being like oh you know it was just a plate of chicken or something you're like it's 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 not that it's not it's not and it, it's like you can't expect to pay what you would pay for a dish if you're eating it in Nigeria when you're eating it in London it's not comparable the same thing with with Sambal Shiok like yeah cool you go to Malaysia and you can have an amazing bowl of, of laksa for, for the equivalent of five quid but you're in Malaysia you're not in London it's completely different it's it's not comparable and there yeah you're absolutely right I think you know there are some you know high-end Italian restaurants where you pay you know, 40 pounds for a plate of pasta and then you go to Padella and you can get a plate of pasta for four quid, like. And I think, I think that's actually it because it's like, well, there are, there are take, like there are takeaways or like grab and go. Cause that's the, the, what kind of I talk about when you've got that variety, there's food, it can be experienced in different ways and at different price points. But then also I think when you're talking about a restaurant um, or a sit down restaurant or even a bar to be honest, um, you're not paying for the food only, not really. You're paying for the experience. And I'm I'm really big on people seeing restaurants as experience because I, I I generally think there, there needs to be a cultural shift. Um, so sometimes I'll find myself explaining to guests about a deposit policy. And there are some people that take quite a bit of umbrage at it. And, and they might say, you know, like, uh, why is it so high? No, so it's, it's not that high. It works out potentially maybe at £20 per person. And if you were going to an event, you would have bought your ticket for £20 and then you would have turned up. But it seems like with restaurants, people want to have the opportunity to maybe drop out at the last minute. But it's an it's an experience. Um, it, it's something, it's not just about the plate of food that we serve. We're, we're, I think restaurants that do restauranting well are creating a night for you. They're creating a vibe. And I think that people should attach a value to that. And I do often feel when someone gets quite resistant to, to pay the deposit, it doesn't make me think like, well, you, I don't think that you actually do value the experience that maybe you're, you, you could have had. And I don't really fully understand why a restaurant experience is seen as so different um, from like live entertainment or something like that. There are so many things that we as, I'm just going to talk about Londoners, right? That we as Londoners pay for upfront and um because we because we are excited to go and we want to go and we're going to commit to that and now with a if a restaurant is asking for a deposit they're not even asking you to pay for your whole meal up front because maybe you don't know what you want to have yet but they're just asking you to demonstrate your commitment that you want to come and 
I the amount of uh, abuse that I mean I personally have received, but also I've seen other restaurateurs receive for asking for that commitment. It, I, I I can't really understand why why people don't want to va- value a restaurant because when they come they have such a great time. Yeah, exactly. And that's so right. Like if you were getting a ticket to anything, if you're going to the cinema, if you're going to a gig, if you're going to a play, like whatever, like you're paying for that upfront. And if you don't show up, you don't get your money back. Like that's just it. So why is that not considered the same in hospitality, especially now? Like you can't afford to have have empty tables because someone didn't show up for their booking. Yeah, it's been it's been really difficult. Um, And and as I said, and and I, and things the re- we've got it for a reason. I mean, I've had times where someone's been, oh, I want to book at the table of twelve. I've explained the deposit policy. They've gone, oh, let me just double check numbers, and they've come back and told me, oh, it's actually only going to be four people. That's a difference of eight. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, I just I think in general there are some um, within. I think there needs to be some real kind of shifts, um, both when you're talking about the restaurant industry generally, but also when you're talking about restaurants representing specific cultures there is I think there is some kind of like lack lack of respect and 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 valuing things and paying for paying for what you're getting paying for what the the thing deserves and the thing is if if that shift doesn't change uh I don't I don't really understand how people think the industry will continue because actually I think the majority of operators want to pay their team a really good wage they do um and I actually think one of the things, I'm, I'm not going to speak to everything, but one of the things keeping wages kind of where they are is because restaurateurs know that they're going to get pushback from their customers. And so they need to keep their price at a certain point. Otherwise, people aren't going to pay. And I, 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 I don't, it's kind of what I was saying about the suya and the, the Nigerian ingredients. I don't know how, I think there needs to be some re-education so that people really understand what the cost is of essentially like their food or like running those sort of operations because it, you you can't keep expecting to be able to eat for eat a meal for like 20-ish quid or whatever and have the team earning like the sort of wage that you think they should be earning so it's someone someone has to pay for that either because if if otherwise either what's going to happen is it either happens you've got three options either wages don't rise either um customers pay more or the operator keeps absorbing that cost and ultimately the operator goes under and and I think that conversation needs to be had like that this is this is where we're at like everyone wants change but no one wants to pay for it and 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 we're gonna see good potentially we might end up seeing some good independent operators disappear as 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 a result of that and I'm kind of more speaking about like in, independent operators whose hearts I kind of know where they're at. I, I, I'm not going to speak for everyone and maybe there are other companies where it's, that's not their scenario, but that's what I'm more thinking about. I think that that needs to be had. And I, think, and I even for myself, like it's even the way we talk about things. Like I used to be like, oh, that's too expensive. And I'd be like, no, it's, it's more like actually I'm not right now. I don't actually want to pay for that or I can't pay for that. But actually when I objectively look at the thing, that is actually probably the right place. Um, and you've got the same thing in fashion, like essentially like fast fashion. It's, it doesn't make sense. We shouldn't be able to get that top for a fiver. <laughs> no, we absolutely. Someone is paying, like everything costs and someone is paying for it. And if you're not paying for it, somebody else is paying for it. And that's something that we need to start. Like, I always feel like the hospitality industry is just like a few steps behind everything else. Like we now, you know, we're like fast fashion is terrible. Let's not do it. Like, but we haven't kind of caught up with that in hospitality and people understanding that, like, you know, it's not just, you're not just paying for the cost of your food that's on your plate. You're paying for the literally probably 20 people at a minimum that it took to get that plate of food in front of you. Anyway, I feel like we could talk about these issues all day, (laughs) but I want to get on to talking about your, um, your writing and I want to ask you about how you managed to kind of fit that in alongside running a a restaurant and also how sessions kind of came to be huh good question (laughs) so today I am particularly stressed 
And I'm wondering why I've done this to myself and <laughs> to write and run a restaurant. So to answer that first question, how do I do it? Um, with bouts of panic, <laughs> bouts of bad inspiration. Like I have, no, I have to be honest, it's not in any, it's not in any way easy, but as I said, I fell into it. So I didn't necessarily plan to do the two things, but having fallen into it, I love them both. Um, and I kind of like muddling my way through, um, and, and some, some months I, I manage it better. Um, I manage my deadlines better. I manage my commitments better. Other months, and maybe it's actually in my head, but other months I feel like, oh, I'm not performing very well on one front or both. Um, but probably the, one of the ways I do manage it is, uh, and probably someone that's made a lot of I probably make a lot of sacrifices. Like I miss out, like if I'm frank, I miss out on quite a bit because actually the time, the free time, for example, over the summer, the free time that I could have had when I wasn't in the restaurant, I was scripting. Um, and so then my free time got much shorter because I was on deadline for two projects. Um, so yeah, I think if you're someone in my life, I think that's something, I think my close friends, I mean, fortunately, my best mate's a writer, so she also was like, "Can't talk like for months because I'm on I'm on deadline on my second edit." <laughs> but yeah, I think if you're my friend, um, you kind of are used to the fact that I'm I've never been someone, or I'm not going to be someone that's like available every weekend or even every weekend. Um, but when I'm present, I'm like I'm I'm fully present. Um, uh, yeah, so that's and that's it's a, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge, and I have to think about why I do those things. Um, but also on writing, on the writing side of things, I don't do everything. I have I know writers who write a lot more than me. Their outputs a lot more. Um, but I find that having trickus actually is quite a good filter, and I really think about what I'm interested in and like what do I really want to do? Do I really want to say yes to this project? And I also think one of the benefits is is made me better at I think communicating and, and negotiating because instead of just taking potentially a deadline that's offered to me or something that's suggested I'm like actually no that's that's actually not going to work like I need to go back and, and, and push back on that um so yeah that's a bit of how I manage <laughs> manage the two essentially I'm not really sure how but I'm, I'm still here doing it so it must be going all right um and sessions so it's 2021 now and sessions is out I actually started writing sessions. I finished the first draft of sessions as a really clunky short play in September, 2019. No, 2016. So five years ago, I actually started writing sessions as a short play, September, 2016. Um, and that was before I'd even written my first full length play. I just, I just had this idea, I explored it. I um, edited it a few times and then I left it. Um, then I wrote The Hose, which was my first debut play. No, debut means first, so that's an, like that's a tautology. That was my first <laughs> um, that was yeah, that was my debut play, my debut full length. And after writing that, along the way, I'd kind of been thinking about sessions again and the themes in it, and I really wanted to return to it. And now I had the confidence in writing a full length play. I was like, I'm gonna make I'm gonna come back to it. Um, and so I was already, I was starting to work, rework it as a full, uh, as a full limb show. Um, but at the same time, I also got a call from Soho Theatre that they wanted to offer me a commission. Um, they wanted to offer me, uh, invite me to join Soho Six. So six writers that were all going to get commission um, with the potential of the show being put on. Now that is something that most people would have jumped for joy at. If I'm being honest, if I didn't already have sessions, the idea in my head, I actually think I might have said no, um, because I didn't like the idea at the time. I was like, oh, I don't know about the idea of like just writing something from the, my head that I haven't thought about, but I'm being art. I've got to deliver something. Um, and actually, I didn't even say yes straight away. What I said to my agent was, I don't know, because the timelines and the deadlines were clashing with the timelines that I anticipated we were going to open the restaurant in. As it happened, we did not open restaurant in said timelines. <laughs> but at the time, I remember thinking, well, you know, this is the year we're going to open the restaurant. That's what I need to focus on. 
what you're what they're potentially asking for me I'm not sure about that they wanted to take it to latitude and I was like, I don't really want to do that that summer blah 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 um and my agent was like okay well let's go back and talk to them and so eventually we renegotiated timelines um and I was like okay cool like let's let's go ahead with it um and so that's when and because I was now on commission I then committed to finishing the play it's very plausible that maybe if I didn't have that um what with everything that was going on with the restaurant I might have not delivered um I might I might have in the end like still be here in 2021 and not having finished that script but potentially I don't know um but something I'm very good at is responding to deadlines and I deliver for deadlines um that's always been my personality and so yeah then it should have actually been on last autumn but pandemic pandemic um and so here we are but uh, the play really came about from quite a few things one was my own experience of being in a really just depressing looking therapy waiting room and I it was like the irony of it I was like this is actually a joke like why are we sent here? like the one of the places where I used to go for therapy was just like like actually turning up to the building itself depressed me I was like this is just awful like <laughs> it looked like some kind of like a, abandoned building and, and the the paint was always peeling and I was like gosh give us some love um and that actually would like kind of sparked quite a few lines and thoughts in the play um then really I as I was developing it as well I also was quite frustrated about the conversation around therapy and the conversation around talking and just mental illness in general um it there's often it's often presented as if like oh if you need to talk to someone and like you should talk to someone now don't get me wrong that's a really good first step but I feel like where we've got to in conversations around mental health it's like that's kind of where it stops like oh if you talk to someone things will be better no (laughs) if you talk to someone it might temporarily lighten your load it might let someone know what's going on for you but actually your day can still feel very shit can I say can I swear your day can still feel really shit and it was the same thing with therapy because I was in therapy going to therapy doing the work I've got a great support network I was doing everything and things still felt bad and for me what that meant was I really I experienced a lot of feelings of failure um on top of everything that I was already in therapy for and I think it took me quite a long time to be honest uh before I really understood what the therapy process involved. Um, I don't think I was really fully prepared for it. And and I basically had to manage my expectations. And I think actually a large part of that is maybe media portrayals, but also the, the conversation. Like um, at the time, once people did start talking about um, mental health difficulties, it felt like the conversation was... I have this really bad problem. Then I started running and I started talking to someone and now I feel better. Like that, that so kind of simplistic and reductive, a little bit of exercise, a little bit of therapy or talking to someone and, or I, you know, I started to really think through if there was someone had anxiety, I started to really look at my worries and then I just, I just didn't worry anymore. <laughs> I was like, Oh, there we go. I just need to do a bit of that. <laughs> and, and it's just it's not that it's a lot it's a lot messier like I'm not the same person I was when I first started therapy I've I've come a long way but I still have days when I'm like this is all pants and everything feels rubbish and and I didn't I don't think there was really space and to a limited degree I don't think there is that much space at the moment still around the real mess of of living and managing your life it's not it's not an upward trajectory necessarily it will or it, you can move upwards but the trajectory is messier it's not it's not linear is, is what I should have said um you can definitely have an upwards trajectory I mean it's not a linear process um and um, which is funny actually a line that I wrote in my play I say that progress isn't always linear and I don't think that that was really being communicated so that a big part of why I wanted to write sessions was really to present the therapy process and how messy it can be and and how difficult it can be for someone who is accessing help to still feel like they're getting help 
Um, and I think that can explain why someone can seemingly have all the resources around them and they can still feel really low. Uh, at the same time, I was also, I wanted to look at like men and how, and how they don't speak. Um, and also like the societal pressures and toxic masculinity, um, which is why the character going through the therapy process is a young man. Um, I was very aware that a number of the um, men in my life would share things with me that they maybe weren't sharing with other people, but I would often be taken aback because I was like, I'm not the closest person to you. So it's interesting that you're sharing this with me now. And it would often happen in quite random scenarios. Like, I don't know, it, they just might erupt one day and just share this thing like, oh, okay, cool, that's cool. Um, and like, I would, I mean, we would talk about it, but what would stick with me is like, how, how is it that it's just come out today on the off chance and how is that that it's come out to me this person who's not necessarily that close with you like who who are you really talking to around this and how are you really managing that um and so I really wanted I guess the player then start to look at those that kind of like intersection of what it is to to kind of grow up in society in a way where you're not encouraged not to talk and then when you go to try and talk and then importantly as well because the main character Tunde is a young black man and actually, I once got asked, like, oh, does that factor into what he's going through? I said, no, his 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 blackness isn't really relevant to the story in any way, shape or form. But it's super important because for me, it really mattered that if I was going to tell this story, that we could see a black man be vulnerable in the way that Tunde ends up being vulnerable. It's very rare, I feel, Um to get portrayals of um, black men that show their sensitive side. Um, and I've, I I wanted, when writing this story, I really wanted it to be, like to really demonstrate that that's, that's possible, that's plausible. And so whilst it makes no real impact on the actual narrative, um, his cultural heritage, I think that actually in terms of just what it does for the viewer watching, whether you're a black man or, or not, like actually having that representation of a young, um, a young black man being sensitive and being vulnerable in the way and also struggling to be vulnerable as well. I think it speaks volumes and it, it it means more than maybe if I'd written the character in a different way. It's also funny, I should add, like I'm a big, I'm big, no, I'm really big on like, um, I hope I don't traumatize people, but like giving people, <laughs> giving, giving people a laugh along yeah. with you, whatever it is you're going to say, because to me, that's the reality. Like I always joke with my friends. I think I actually get funnier when I'm sad. <laughs> like, like it's, it, I, and again, it comes it comes back to that representation. I think there's this myth that like depression looks like crying all the time, whereas it's not necessarily like I can be. No. I it's I can be deeply upset, but also laughing as I text my friend a meme, like yeah. in the same kind of breath. But it doesn't change the weight of the sadness that I'm feeling. If if that makes sense, it's, yeah. But, but it's, it's funny, basically. If you listen to this, it's funny. You should definitely come and see it. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's so important, isn't it? And it's not in a way where we're like trying to make light of a situation. It's just a way of being like, this is the reality of life. If you have a mental health illness or you're experiencing poor mental health, that like sometimes it's just the way life is. And I think it's like I was just nodding along so ferociously when you were talking before because it's so true it's like we're expected to be like okay cool like you've been struggling a bit with your mental health you're having a bad time start exercising go for a run do the couch to 5k go and see a therapist and you'll feel better (laughs) and then (laughs) when when you do those things and you don't feel better you do feel like a failure like this is something I thought talk to my therapist about all the time where I'm like okay but like I've been eating well I've been exercising I've been meditating I've been sleeping well I've been avoiding stress I've been doing I've hardly been drinking all of these things and she's like yeah but like those things don't just instantly cure you or make you feel better it is you can be doing all of those things and you're still going to have tough times and I think it's about understanding and I think this is probably something that comes uh, it definitely is something that I see when I hear you talk or um, read your Instagram post or anything that you really like try to get that message out that like having a mental health issue is not something that you just suddenly are cured from it's something that you just you live with and you do the things that you can to make it more manageable and cope better but you have si- like I don't know if it's I don't know if it's the word cycles but like rhythm so I and I'm I'm admittedly probably now I was about to say this because I'm not being very kind to myself but I'm feeling quite overwhelmed at the moment and so I'm now getting frustrated because I can't move at the same pace but actually what you sometimes have to recognize is 
some days you a bit like when you're on your menstrual when you're a bit like the menstrual cycle right when you're there might be a particular point in your period cycle where you've got loads of energy there's another point where you're like low, really low energy can't do much just need to keep it resting and it's a similar thing with my mental health there are days there's times where I'm on form like boom 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 I can be having everything thrown at me and I'm like don't even mind doesn't even matter doesn't matter that we've had all these no shows doesn't like blah 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 but there's other days when nothing happens not, I'm not even being having anything thrown at me but I don't know I can't open the bottle on the milk and then I'm like oh my god <laughs> yeah but like I'm just set off a lot more a lot more easily and it's yeah as I said progress progress isn't linear and but I think I think it is also re- it, it is hard and actually sometimes the reason I write those posts or I say this stuff is is more also to remind myself <laughs> it's like I need to I kind of need to coach myself and it is that weird thing where it's easier to give advice to someone else but then in, in doing that I kind of am hoping to remind myself and also because I very much believed like I said to someone recently if this was five years ago I wouldn't have done this podcast I would not be talking I would not let like mental health and the business be attached in the same conversation I didn't want anyone to know I didn't want to be judged I did, I was worried about what it would mean for what people thought chikus could become if they knew that I had any sort of difficulties it was very much something I wanted to swallow up and I also didn't believe that it was possible for me to have like a modicum of the success that I wanted without being different without this thing in my head disappearing completely um and I think over time I've learned that, or I'm learning, let me be honest with myself, I'm still learning that um, it. I'm not going to pretend it's easy. It can definitely make things particularly difficult at times, but it doesn't have to stop me or it doesn't necessarily mean it will stop me. It sometimes does slow me down if I'm, if, if I'm being frank, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to stop me. And one of the reasons I think I like to be vocal is because when I was starting my journey and I looked up, I didn't see anyone that I perceived as successful or whatever, like also having mental health difficulties. And it and it really did feel like you had to overcome it. It really felt like it was like, because anytime someone did, they talk about, oh, they used to have it. And now I don't. And look at me now. I, I do X, Y, Z. And da, da, da. and people weren't saying, I used to have these really bad difficulties. I've done a bit of work. I still have those difficulties. But at the same time, I'm also doing X, Y, Z. Look at me now. Which is which is very different um, for someone looking up to think, oh, whether you have to get rid of it completely or whether it's actually quite possible to live the life that you want um, and, and navigate alongside. And so that's part of the reason why I'm quite vocal. I don't do, I haven't overcome my mental health difficulties to do chikus and to write and it's a thing of the past it's very much a thing of my present um that I have to navigate and I'm doing all of those things alongside the challenges that I that I face um and I'm doing all right at it you know (laughs) yeah I think you're doing more than all right at it and it's true like we want to we want to hear from people and we want to understand while people are in it and while you're in the thick of it and you're you're dealing with it rather than when people have just come out the other side because it's very easy to look back on something isn't it Mm, okay I just want to finish with a few little quick fire questions um so what's your favorite sauce oh my god I'm gonna sound like such a basic bitch (laughs) do you know what I'm gonna say is it gonna be ketchup yeah (laughs) it is I'm gonna say ketchup because it's just and the, but the thing that people don't understand is there are different types of ketchup. Like, you know, when you go to a place, you have the cheap ketchup. It doesn't taste, you know, it's like the wrong kind of red. But yeah, because I'm thinking about where I have sauce, I don't really eat, add sauce to my food much. But the place I have it, like if I'm having chips, that sort of stuff, then I need ketchup. So yeah, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel so disappointed in that answer. <laughs> but yeah, it's ketchup. Basic it is not up. basic at all. It is not basic at all. It is also my favorite sauce. I think it's probably almost the only thing I eat every day. It's so good. Uh, what are you currently listening to? Oh, uh, yes. So um, I am listening to the introduction by the cast of Queens. So it's got Eve and Brandy and it's, it's, it's a rap song and it's 
the what's the word I'm looking for? Like the melody, the beat, whatever. Is um it's a Lil Kim track, and I love Lil Kim anyway. And then, but it's got Eve Brownie and a couple of other people on it, and it's taken from the series. I've not watched the series at all, but my sister sent me the song. We absolutely love female rappers, and neither of us have cars, but we're 100 percent gonna get a zip car just so we can drive around like listening to the song and what my brother doesn't know is I'm actually now planning my rap career so if it takes off he might have to run Chikus by himself because I think I've got potential I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna write some bars and drop my EP next year <laughs> that sounds like like the very obvious next step that you would take <laughs> yeah I think so I think I think I think that's what the world needs is my I can't I can't even I mean I talk fast but I don't think I can rap but still I, let me give it a go I didn't think I could write until so maybe maybe I'm gonna be the next big thing <laughs> but if you could only use one spice for the rest of your life what would it be no, no, this is not a fair game. <laughs> uh, ah. It's a really tough one. Spice, not seasoning. It can be a seasoning. Do you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna go for like a stock cube, like a Maggie stock cube. Yeah. They just, yeah. It, it just, it can, because <laughs> if I go for another spice, it means it will, like say if I went for a particular chili or something, it might, all my dishes are going to have that chili flavor. It's not neutral. So I need something that's just going to elevate all my food to a neutral point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that will make, yeah, okay. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go for a stock cube, I think. I, I can't, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm doing. That's a very sensible answer. And who is your dream dinner guest? I think, so I, depending on what day you ask me this question, I think different things, but this is something on my mind at the moment. Um, it would be my parents, but when they were younger. Um, because... Like, I only know them as they are now, but like the other day, me and my mom were having a conversation and she was talking about some things, like she's sharing her experience from what she's learned from that time. And it's, it would be, I, I would love to have known what they were like, or like interacted with them. Like, yeah, I guess that we were similar ages, like in their, either in their like late twenties, early thirties, or even slightly younger. So yeah, I think I'd, I'd have my parents over for dinner in a kind of like time machine when I could see them as younger and and it would be interesting as well like hearing them talk maybe about their thought what I'd love to know what they were concerned about then versus what they are now you know if they they talk with the wisdom but when they were my age at 29 were they too worried about some of the similar things I was worried about or how did they think life was gonna pan out see I'm talking that is a good answer you know that's I'm a not, really, no, really, I'm thinking really about it. Like, that is a good answer. <laughs> I wish we could somehow create that. It would be so cool. All right. Um, lastly, if anyone's listening to this and wants to see sessions, how do they do it? Um, they should go to SohoTheatre.com um, and they can access tickets to sessions there. It's running from the 8th of November to the 4th of December. Alternatively, you can head to my link in bio on Instagram or my Twitter because it's there. I'm posting it all the time. And I'm Ify, I-F-E-Y underscore Frederick, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K. Amazing. We'll also put the link in our link in bio on Instagram as well so people can get it through there. Um, It's been a joy as always to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so Um, much for having me. Beyond the Past is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at kellyscause.